I, I'm, I'm going to get back to the personal part. I, I loved that Scott was, um, was taking us to a real corporate word this morning, a word that we not only individually, but corporately as a body, need to be calibrated to. Very foundational, just absolutely solid, rock solid. And um, uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to try to build on that, come back to uh, more of the personal relationship piece. That is what I felt was percolating in me as I was approaching this conference. And as we were last night talking about uh, the love of God and God's desire to be intimate with us. Um, so I wanna come back and talk about our identity. I loved the connection that, um, that Scott made at several levels. One of them that he made, if you recall from this morning, um, very, very profound truth that he started with, and that is we, we know ourselves by knowing God. People search for identity if it's based in them, if it's based in their search for identity, it's always a dead end. But when we look to God, in whose image we are made, when we look to God, that's really how we discover ourselves. We discover ourselves by discovering God. And that, that kind of set the trajectory when Scott said that this morning, and it was so, so really good. So I think coming back and looking at, um, uh, at some, of, some of the personal part of this, some of the personal relationship pieces of it, talking about our new, new identity. Again, I want to go back to some things I said last night um, and, and, then, and then go into John chapter 15, okay? Now, they, these have blanks, do they not? Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. Okay, so last night we sent you the one with the ones filled in, which is actually kind of cool, uh, but, but now you get to actually fill in the blanks. This is perfect for a siesta session, right? So you've got something to do, right? Keep you awake. Now, Last night we talked about um, we, we talked about um, the fellowship of God, God in His Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you if, if you take the Scripture and ask yourself where is the beginning point, um, the beginning point is actually before Genesis one one. If you take all of Scripture and just kind of say where does it fit chronologically, there's a moment, there's a snapshot we're given before time, and that's John one. So actually, the whole story of God begins in John one. John 1, 1, and 2, as John then with full revelation kind of looks back even prior to creation to that which was, in, that which was um, uh, there before there was any creation. And, and so when John says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, already from the very beginning we get the idea that there is some, something of communion in God. There's something of a communal part of God's nature. I know, you know, people have debated that for a long, long time. How much of it is this and how much of it is that? How much is one? How much is three? We, we, we don't want to get there today. We just simply want to acknowledge the fact that there's something about relationship and community and communion that we see modeled in God's character. And it's right there, John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So God is community, okay? This is just review from last night. God is community. He, by the way, it's more, it's more, um, more theoretic, uh, theologically correct to say God is communion. And when we say community, it's almost like that there are three individual deities that kind of got together and created a relational something. Uh, communion is a more accurate word, but I think when I use the word community, just know that I'm not speaking of it as you know, a, a, a community social group where three separate individuals have somehow formed Godhead. It's com communion is really the more precise, precise word for it. God's community, and that community is mutual love. That community is mutual love. That's implied in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It didn't just say the Word was God. It was with God, which right there is implying some mutuality. It's, a, it's implying relationship. It's implying that this, 
this relationship is something about giving and receiving. That's going to become important in a minute. Giving and receiving love. They each have eternally given and received love, and they abide in constant source. Now, here's, here's something that I'm going to just unpack a little bit more. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in their mutual love, have also eternally lived in mutual source. They have eternally given and received. And so there's a sense of, of sourcing, if you will, that the Father and Son and Spirit have always experienced as they have received from each other. And that's going to be important as we um, look at John, John 15. And we talked last night about the definition of person, that the definition of person in, in, in God's uh, example to us as God as communion, the definition of person is other-centeredness, that, that the Father is the Father because he's loving the Son and the Spirit. And that helps us understand what person is, radically different from the idea of individual. And we talked about that last night. Now, what I want to talk about this afternoon is um, living in our new identity, living the loved life. Now, this is going to at first appear so basic, and maybe there's some reason why uh, Scott and I have been led to come back to some foundational issues. I know where I am right now, there are some, there, there's some old truths that are being given a new sheen for me, for me personally, and this is one of them. In a minute, we're going to get into John 15 and the whole abiding life, and I will tell you that I've looked at that for years, decades. I've taught on it, preached on it, I've heard umpteen gazillion sermons on it, and teaching, and, 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 and there was something about the abiding life I still didn't get until a couple of years ago that suddenly was a turnkey for me. And it has to do with living in our new identity as loved people. Uh, settling our identity, one of the reasons why it's important is that how we settle the identity question, how we settle that determines how emotionally healthy we are. How we settle that will determine how emotionally healthy we are. And again, the, the mantra in, in our culture is find your identity, is uh, create your identity, is Try on all kinds of personas and masks. You know, figure out what is going to elicit uh, the most favorable response from people. And then when you say, okay, if I'm this way, I get most acceptance this way, then you become that, which is not really you, but you take on that persona. And pretty soon after walking this journey for a while, you lose whatever sight you might have had on who God made you to be. It becomes very confused. And so... If we, settle this, if we settle the identity issue ourselves, basically, we're not going to be very emotionally healthy. If we go to another source for our identity, in other words, God, if God becomes the one who grounds our identity, then we will become more emotionally healthy. And number two, um, this determines the quality of our relationships. The quality of our relationships. Now, before, before we jump into this, let me, let me give you some backstory. Um, my wife and I were on a prayer retreat maybe now about three years ago. And uh, I was just meditating in Scripture one morning and going back to John 15, reading the whole, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you don't abide in me, you abide alone, you're not going to bear much fruit. And by the way, you know, if you're not bearing any fruit, God's going to burn you. Okay. Um, reading all this stuff, and I, I said, God, I, what, what does abiding in Christ mean? I mean, does it mean that I, I try to live in worship all the time? That I'm trying to 
like Brother Lawrence, I'm trying to practice the presence. Is, is that what it means, practicing the presence of God? I know he's here, I know he's here, I know he's here. Is that what it means? It's partly that. Is it my obedience? Do I abide in you by being obedient? And as I'm being obedient, then I'm gonna get all the commensurate goodies from heaven? Is that, is that the deal? What, what, what does abiding really mean? Yeah, dwelling, living, I am, I am in you. Most of the time, God, my mind is, is scattered by the things I gotta do and the commitments I have and the expectations of people. What does it mean to abide in you? Seems like there's this thing, God, that if I'm in you, there's this constant source of life. And what comes out of me is just the natural fruitfulness that comes from me being within the vine. I get all that, God, but here I am, after all these years, I still don't quite understand what it means. Now for me, I'm gonna tell you what I discovered that morning. And this is just one, one perspective. It's only one angle from which to look at John 15. And I've heard some stellar, stellar stuff. Bob Sorge has a message on this that is just so revelatory and so blinding. I mean, if you, I, I think he has a book on it. You know, Google him, get that book where he's talking about John 15 and the abiding life. It is so stellar. Uh, I'm gonna come at this a little differently just because of the way that God uh, unfolded it to me that morning at the cabin when I was saying, God, I really don't think I understand this. So much of my understanding of abiding in Christ, I didn't know it, was performance-based. If I obey, if I worship, if I praise, if I cultivate the presence, if I try to keep God in uppermost in my mind, if I am renewed in my mind. And so much of it was performance-based that I, I think that's where I was stumbling. And so I read it again. And again, I'll come to this here in, in our outline, but I'm giving you a preview. I, I came at it again. I said, okay, God, I'm gonna read this again. Do you define it, Jesus, in the text? Is there something that you say as you're teaching this pivotal, pivotal truth about abiding in you? Is there something as you unpack the teaching to them that I've missed? And as I read it again, I came to verse nine. And that absolutely stunned me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. All of a sudden, this became a hermeneutical turnkey for me. I thought, wait a minute. Okay, now you're actually spelling it out. You're not saying abide in worship. You're not even saying abide in your presence. You're not saying abide in being obedient. You actually spelled it out to them. Abide in my love. So I wanna, I wanna state something so obvious and so simple, but to me still so amazingly dramatic. Your core identity is I am loved by God. I am loved by God. My name is Steve Loved by God. I am loved by God is the core identity. Now we know, it. oh, of course that, I get that. We sang it this morning. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am. We sing stuff like that. But I'm telling you a couple years ago, and I'm an old cat right now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna ask Tom how old you are. Uh, but you know, Scott, he's in his mid-40s. You know, he's just starting. I'm in my early 60s, and here I am. You think by now, oh, you should know all this stuff. I know, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> all I'm telling you is a couple years ago, I just got, what? Why didn't I see this? 
So much of, I mean, grace has been one of my big messages. I love grace. I mean, like last night, you know, it was just all just dripping with grace, I trust. But still, there was something about my life that was just slightly performance-based, still, that really, really rattled me in a good way when I came back to this. I am loved by God. If our identity is grounded in the truth that we are loved by God, then our identity will not be shaped by our need to succeed. We won't use relationships to help us feel good about ourselves. And when we are rejected, it will not shake us to our core. We don't realize we do this, you know, that we have an agenda with relationships, but we really do sometimes. Because we subconsciously will establish friendships or relationships with the subconscious need to um, feel affirmation or approval. Because, again, we don't go into a relationship with an agenda, but underneath there's a sense that um, if I am approved, my sense of self-esteem will raise. My sense of self-worth will be heightened. So um, we have this subconscious agenda even with our relationships. We give, it's the, it's the reciprocity system. We, we give, but subconsciously we hope to get in return. What we're hoping to get in return is affirmation and approval because we're using that to make an, a, a deposit into our self-esteem account. So when we understand we are really loved by God, it actually frees us from having hidden agendas in relationships like that. And oh my goodness, what kind of freedom is that? So, I mean, even, even, um, even when it comes to our passion for God, when we know that we are loved by God, that we are the object of God's love, our identity is not that we're passionate for God, but that he's passionate for us. I know a lot of folks who get their identity out of being passionate for God. And, and, and really, that can even in and of itself be a performance thing. We don't realize it, but it is. The real cool thing is that he's passionate for us. That's where our identity is centered. So, abiding in Christ. What does abiding in Christ look like practically? And as I've already mentioned, John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And to abide in Christ is to live in the 24-7 awareness that I am loved by God. To live in the 24-7 awareness that I am loved by God. You say, okay, well, I have... I've, yeah, isn't that just another way of just saying living in his presence and practicing his presence? Yes, but in a little different way. I'll give you a, uh, a, a, an example. So about a year and a half ago, we have a great eldership team, a uh, great leadership team. Uh, and yet one, one, uh, one of the elders um, called me one, uh, one evening and, and in a very godly way, um, basically... Um, uh, rebuked me, and it was not inappropriate. Now he might have been a little over the top, but uh, but he just had you know, and he wasn't being he wasn't being gnarly. He, he was just being honest, but he was being a little bit stark in his honesty, not realizing, of course, that me as a musician, you do have to kind of finesse me a little bit and just get him in the right spot. No. When I finished that conversation, you know, normally my initial response would be. Uh, wow, I, I need to process this. There was some truth in this. It stung a little bit, but I need to process it. There is some truth. Oh, Lord, I want to be humble. I want to be humble and just receive the correction. And, and God was thinking, yeah, I, I get the humble thing, but you're not starting at the right point. You need to start at, I am loved by God. That was truth. It also hurt you. And if you try to start with humility, you're just going to get into a works deal. So, okay, let's back up, because this, this is when this was just really 
developing afresh in me. Things that I'd known for years, but it was just fresh application. So, so I th okay, okay. So my, my, my precious elder friend just said something that was pretty, pretty stark. I needed some correction, but it, the way he gave it was a little abrupt. Um, but before I even go there, I am loved by God. I am loved by God in the moment that I'm criticized. I am loved by God in the moment I feel competitive with someone. I am loved by God the moment I feel not just second class, but maybe fifth class. I am loved by God. Suddenly, t what I'm talking about with 24-7 awareness of I'm loved by God is you begin everything. Somebody hurt you, okay, I'm loved by God. Somebody, are you having a hard time forgiving somebody? Okay, I'm loved by God. You know, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to trust God. Uh, something I will say maybe in, later in the, in the talk, and this is gonna sound really, really abrupt, okay? I'll try to qualify it a little later. People say, I'm really trying to, I am really, really trying to trust God. And I said, well, don't. Don't try to trust God. Start earlier. I am loved by God because you, you, you will trust God to the degree that you know you're loved by God. I see so many people trying so hard. And I want to say, wait a minute. Yes, yeah, there's effort in it, sure. But let's make sure we're starting everything. Every, I probably do this dozens of times now. I'm a, a day. I'm loved by God. I was doing it last night on a situation that had arisen uh, back home that I was aware of. Uh, and I had to just say, okay, so, some um, little bit of, uh, little bit of uh, reconciliation between, between two people, not, be not with me, but with two people within our congregation. And I knew I'm, when I go home, I'm going to have to jump into that, help be a peacemaker. I said, oh, God, I, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Oh, no, wait a minute. I am loved by God. And so, you know what? I'm not going to see myself first as a peacemaker, even though that's right. I'm going to see myself as loved by God so that when I do jump into the reconciliation moment, I've got a certain emotional margin because I'm not going there to fix the issue. I'm going to go in there just flowing out of the life of the Spirit within me because I am loved by God. Now I can approach that reconciliation moment with a lot more margin. So this becomes really practical when, when I am loved by God becomes our starting point. Every negative emotion you have, your starting point is I'm loved by God. And then move from there. So a key thought here, identity at its core comes from being loved. If identity is based in anything we initiate, then it is not identity. Identity is based in radical dependence. Okay, so I mean... Have you ever thought about, let's take your physical appearance. So you're, you're trying, let's say, you're trying to figure, what, what, figure out what you look like, okay? And you say, okay, I am going to figure out what I look like. I'm not going to depend on any outside source. No mirror, no, no water, no, no you know, crystal or, or uh, surface where I can see my image. I'm not even going to go to anybody else and have them draw a picture of me. I am, I am going to discover who I look like. You will never, ever know what you look like. You, I mean, to know that you've got brown eyes, you're going to have to have somebody tell you, somebody draw a picture of you, look in the mirror, look in a basin of water, something that will reflect back to you what you are. Identity is impossible to get on your own. We need another. And, of course, the perfect other is the one in whose image we're made. 
And that image, that, listen, that image talk this morning, tonight, the, the, the image is absolutely integral here, the understanding of image. It's absolutely integral to this idea of identity. You know, because if we don't see God, I, I want to go back and just underscore that. If we don't see God, we will not actually know the mirror that is reflecting back to us who we are. He tells us who we are. By what he does, he tells us who we are. So a person can never know what they look like on the outside. They need an outside power, a camera, a mirror, someone's verbal description of you. So how do we, how do we abide in Christ by responding to everything in life from our core identity, I am loved by God. And this sets us free from controlling behaviors, performing behaviors, all kinds of stuff. You will not trust God unless you're convinced that you're loved by God. And that's the point I just made a minute ago. You will not trust God unless you're convinced that you are loved by God. And all of our attempts at trying to trust him will be futile apart from this. Now, Jesus said in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, that, that there's, there's so much to this one part of the sentence here, as the Father has loved me. You can, you can look at in the Gospels how the Father loved the Son. I mean, the Father was completely disclosing to the Son. The Father uh, completely lavished his affection and approval on the Son. You can look at the Father-Son relationship through the Gospels and get a lot from that, as the Father has loved me. I'm going to come at it just a little bit more narrowly and go back to the communion of God, Father, God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and, and draw some implications for us about how we can walk in this identity because Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Therefore, abide in my love. Let me say something else about these passages. There's a passage later on, I think it's verse 12, and I think he also says it in John 13, where, um, where, where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And we instantly go to the imitation word. Okay, so, as I've, so just as Jesus has done, okay, now I am going to do. That's good, but it doesn't go far enough. It's actually better understood not as I have loved you, but as I am loving you. As I am loving you, so love each other. There's a constant, that's the context. It's the constant receiving of the source of love in order that we might love. And so often, we kind of uh, dumb it down to imitation. And I, I get Thomas Akempis, I love his book. I love, I love the idea of we imitate Christ, but, but if, we, if we stop there or if we limit it to that, I think we're going to lose some of that 24-7 sourcing that is ours. If we understand it as I am being loved, so love each other. So here we go. The son is the son because he is loved by the father and the father is the father because he is loved by the son. It's interesting that the identity of these two persons comes not by what they claim, but by what they receive. I don't know if that's in your notes. Is that in your notes? Okay. Not by what they claim, but by what they receive. I want to just make a point of this. I've grown up uh, for a number of years in settings where, uh, rightly, people, people have taught, rightly taught, uh, about our identity, that, that, that we need to claim what is ours. I am the head and not the tail. I am a child of the Father. Uh, I am a son and daughter of the King. Uh, none can separate me. Uh, all, of those, all of those scriptures that we claim that are our identity in Christ. And I've seen, as you have too, probably lists of what our identity in Christ is. But I've also seen where everybody keeps trying to claim it. It's like they're talking themselves into it. You know, like year after year, okay, 
I, I, I'm really claiming my identity. And there's something almost forced. This again, back to my uh, relationship with Nancy. You know, wouldn't it be odd if every day I was, I was claiming my identity as her husband? I am, I am her husband. I am her husband. I am, I am, I am. But that's the way I see a lot of Christians with this identity thing. Okay, I am, I, I am a child of the Father. He is a good, good Father. And I, and I get it, and God's faithful to minister to that level. I just wonder if there's, a, if, if there's just a better way through this than constant claiming. Can you imagine the Son of God in relationship with the Father? I am the Son, I am the Son, I am, I am, I am, I am. I do believe in spooks. I do. No, <laughs> I just came to me. Wizard of Oz. I don't know. That's just totally out there. Remember, remember the line? You know, I do believe. I do believe. Well, that's the way we sometimes approach faith. I do. I do. I do. But their identity as father and son is not based on what they claim. They've never had to claim it. It's based on what they have eternally received. Massive, for me, massive shift. You only know who you are by letting yourself be loved by God. You only know who you are by letting yourself be loved by God. You settle into who you are by receiving God's love. The son's always been the son because the father's always loved him. His very identity as the second person of the Godhead flows from the never-ending love he receives from the father. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in a minute. Next point, identity is based on another not on yourself. Covered that already, so you just fill in the blank. Identity is based on another. For eternity, personal identity has been based on being loved by another. The identity question for all eternity from God's model, the identity question has never been settled by discovery or search. It has always been about receiving. That's why there's never been, been any need to ask. The three persons have never asked had to ask. Now you say, well, yeah, but we're imperfect people. Oh, I get that. But nevertheless, the, the truth still stands that primarily we come into our identity not by trying to assert our gift, not by even trying to find our function, as important as that is. First, our identity is grounded in what we're receiving, loved by God in the moment. No person... Um, No person within the God community has ever given without receiving. That, that's it. Well, that's obvious, but when you think about the implications, there's never been a moment in all eternity where the Father of himself gave to the Son and the Spirit, or the Son or the Spirit. They, they've all, now, it's been simultaneous, eternal. It's just been reality. There's no other reality than simultaneous giving and receiving. We are finite people, I get that, and I'll come to that in just a second, but I'm just looking at God for a minute. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for all eternity never given without receiving. You say, well, that just sounds so theoretical. Well, to make it really practical, this is why the Holy Spirit spends our lifetime getting us to be dependent. It, 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 he's not just trying to make us humble. He's just getting us to where we can work in heaven for eternity. Because heaven is a place where of constant receiving. And if there's any vestige of, of self-effort, self-reliance, independence, it just doesn't work. So God is in the business of getting us into his, his reality. And his reality is selfless communion. And so 
uh, I know that there's just nothing I have to give to you. This might sound sanctimonious, and maybe 10 years ago it was. I was just really trying to be humble. Now it's really coming out of gut-level conviction. I know I have just squat to give you guys without receiving. If I'm not consistently receiving, there's no flow of giving out to you. That's huge. So, and, and, and you say, well, that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try real hard, try real hard to receive. Listen, if God himself has never given without receiving, how dependent do you think we need to be? It's like we are dependent big time. And actually that should be freeing. I mean, it's the John the Baptist deal. I can only give what I've received. It's that open-handed open -hand, open posture. And this is totally freeing. So no person within the, God, within the God community has ever given without receiving. Identity, as I said, is not first something you are, but rather is first something you receive. And this is why he is, he is spending our whole lives leading us day by day, step by step, into ever-increasing dependence on the Holy Spirit. We are learning how to live in God's world, learning how to live within the divine community. Um, I would say that a key to experiencing our loved by God identity is depending on the Holy Spirit. A key to experiencing our loved by God identity is depending on the Holy Spirit. So. It is good to say, I am loved by God. He is a good, good father to make these confessions. It is good to say that, um, that uh, there's now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. It is good to say that I am a child of the king. It is good to say that he has made us a kingdom of, of uh, kings and priests. It is good to say all of those things and claim them, full stop. Can I also say that one of the things we may miss in this grasping of our identity is the in real time moment we're depending on the Holy Spirit. So next time you are struggling with anxiety or anger, any destructive emotion, next time you're walking through that uh, and you're trying to work through it, start first by, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't, I, I, I can't forgive in my, on my own strength, I can't forgive, uh, I, I, I can't do this on my own. I've got to depend on the Holy Spirit. It's in depending on the Holy Spirit in real time that we actually experience loved by God. Somehow dependence in the moment builds your awareness of loved by God. Now, I, again, I know conceptually we know that, but some of us live in a very cause and effect spiritual world. We kind of live in this spiritual Newtonian world. If I had, have you seen a, a Newton's, I might get to that this afternoon, maybe not. Have you, um, um, you know Newton's cradle, the Newton's cradle thing? It's those, little, those four little silver balls suspended by the string, you've seen them, right? And, you, and, and then you release one ball and then the ball on the end uh, in an equal way moves. So for every action there is a? Right, right. So we're pretty Newtonian. If I worship, we get God's presence. If I pray, we get the blessings. If I have faith, there will be healing. Believe it or not, for some of us in a, in a, in a more renewal background, we are pretty performance-oriented. We don't realize it. We are Newtonians. Should be Einsteinians. <laughs> in the sense that reality is not about our, our obedience cause. I mean, if you think about it, 
If our obedience causes God, then we are conditioning God. If we can condition God, there is no God. I'm not, I'm not minimizing obedience, but I'm framing obedience as, as an outgrowth of dependence on the Holy Spirit. When real, really, we should be just source flow people. There's a source, we float in the moment. Look at Jesus. How, 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 is, it, how is it that Jesus knew, which he did, knew he was going to die one of the most painful deaths, take the sins of the world. He knew that. Now, how do you live with that future in front of you and enjoy the moment and enjoy people and enjoy and just have joy? I mean, if you were to tell me, okay, three years, you're dying. You're going to die this way and this is going to happen. I mean, most of my days would be, okay, <laughs> okay, let's party. I know what's coming, but I'm trying in the moment to just shut that out. That wasn't Jesus. Because the future, the future never crowded into Jesus. He was fully aware. It didn't affect his pure joy in the moment because he was so utterly and completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus could do that. He was God. Have you ever thought about Acts 1? Where, you know, after um, the resurrection and he's with, you know, he's with all the boys and girls and they're talking ab about the kingdom. What does it say in like the first verse of Acts 1? as Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave the commands. It's like, what? The resurrected Son of God, God of very God, is actually through the Holy Spirit doing this? Yeah. He was modeling complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. That's there for us. You say, well, what are you saying? I'm saying, like, like when you are hurt, when you are wounded by someone, in that moment, it's like, okay, I am loved by God. I can't, I can't, I can't do anymore. I can't, I can't address this. I, the first thing I've got to do is just recalibrate. I am loved by God and depend on the Holy Spirit in this moment of needing to forgive, in this moment of feeling so rejected, feeling so wounded. So a key to experiencing our love by God identity, you wanna, if you want to feel loved by God, just depend on the Holy Spirit every chance you consciously get. <laughs> and that'll become such a lifestyle. You see, but isn't, isn't that an action? Yeah, but it's different. It's not me trying to catalyze something. It's me just surrender. It is, it, it's the one action we can do. And don't, isn't this true about salvation? We say, well, you can't do anything to save yourself. That's right. And you know what? There's nothing you can do now to save yourself. It was, it was dependence on the Holy Spirit then to convict and bring you to a knowledge of himself, but still dependence on the Holy Spirit. And by saying, I'm loved by God, what you're doing when you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna try to heal, or I'm not gonna deal, try to deal with the emotion of rejection. I am, I am, this is tough, but I am going to just verbally say, I'm loved by you, and in that moment, that's my posture of depending on the Holy Spirit. The way I start my in-the-moment journey of dependence on the Holy Spirit is confessing that I am loved by God because that's what Jesus told me to do. If you want to abide in me, this is the way you do it. Abide in my love. Abide in the awareness that you are loved by me. Okay. So, no person within the Godhead, the God community, has ever received without giving at the same time. We continuously receive his love as we continuously give it to others. This becomes a very important worldview, this giving thing. So I'll say that again. We continuously receive his love 
as we continuously give it to others. There's never been ever in all eternity a moment where any one person within the God community received without at the same time giving. You say, well, what application is there for me? It just simply gives me the opportunity to, when I least want to do it, to give. Giving is not just a good idea. When, when Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's not just talking about money, tithes, or even just a good rule of thumb for human living and human relationship. He's actually going to the worldview of the God community because there's always been a giving out. The Father has always given and loved and adored. We talked about that last night. The Son and the Spirit have always mutually loved and given out to one another. So if you're feeling pretty, pretty ornery, this afternoon, then one of the ways that we land the identity piece is I'm loved by God. So I'm going to I'm gonna give to Dan. Dan, let me, let me encourage you. You know, that's part of our priesthood is not just ministering to God, but ministering one to another. So if I'm coming always ready to give, not in my own initiative, you know, I'm loved by God, so I'm constantly receiving. But if I'm constantly receiving, I, I, I want to make sure I am letting that be released in a constant giving. Now, so much of our, um, I, I, I want to go back to something I wrote in, 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 my, in my margin when Scott was sharing this morning. Um, we have, we have a, an attractional model of doing church on uh, you know, uh, Sunday. Come to our event, and if the event is polished and really done well, it's going to attract people. And, and uh, Scott was rightly drawing our attention to the, um, how bogus that is. There's actually something in our more experiential world that we, can be, uh, we need to be wary of, and that's a therapeutic model. You know, where the model is come and, and be healed. I know there's a, uh, a friend of mine years ago started something called the worship spa. And I thought, what? Okay, I, I understand what they're saying. Come and receive healing in the presence of the Lord. But you know what? There's a lot of that that has, um, there's a lot of that that has become, without us realizing it, a bit self-serving, self-focused. I'm here, I'm here to worship you and honor you, and I'm also here just to receive from you in order, yes, that we can continuously give. That's the, I mean, that's the whole end of the analogy, right, in John 15? I'm the vine, you're the branches, there is fruit. The way we approach it sometimes, he is the vine and I'm a branch and I'm soaking it up. All that we're receiving is going to eventuate into fruitfulness. There should be, one of the ways I know that I have really encountered the presence of God is an increased desire to give to others. If I'm not experiencing an increased desire to give to others, then basically I'm having a therapy session in worship. I'm having an emotional catharsis in worship. I don't mean to be beat up anybody. That was just, that's not even in the notes. So I just, I just thought I'd mess with somebody there. Okay. If you were to receive something, someone first has to give. In the Godhead, giving and receiving has been eternally simultaneous. In the Godhead, giving and receiving has happened at the same time forever. But the fact remains that there's no receiving without giving and there's no giving without receiving. That means that when, when we're 
dry, when we are tempted to be self-focused, when you start with, I am loved by God, it's going to create within you this natural inclination to give. Because that's the way the Father, Son, and Spirit roll. They, they, there is the ongoing eternal inclination to give. So when we're in the presence, you're in that presence. You are in the never stop giving presence because that's their presence. So if you are kind of stuck, uh, brittle inside, and you just need the, the rain of heaven to soften your spirit, soften your soul, totally get that. But realize that as he softens you, there's going to be this natural desire to give. Let it, let it go unto giving. Don't see it just as something that's a ministry to you, but a ministry through you. No person within the God community has ever had to ask to be loved. They've just given. And this tells me that our focus should not be on our needs, but on giving out, knowing that our needs will be met as we give freely. Again, that's an amazing thing for me, you know, that we stop and think about it. The son's never had to ask to be loved. Now, you say, well, that's God, though. That's perfect. We're not perfect. We're finite. We live in, in broken relationships. We live with finite people who sometimes we, 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 we have a hard time with each other. I get that. But I, I still think there's something about the model, the example, the dynamic that is given to us that frees us from having to ask other people to love us. And this is freedom when we truly let God love us. That's one of your fill-ins here. We can be free from asking others to love us when we truly let God love us. I'm not saying that we deny our need to be loved. I need to be loved. But, you know, I found almost every time, either directly or indirectly, I try to go get it. Either I just, um, I mean, I remember, I remember, um, <laughs> uh, Tom's heard this story, my 30th birthday. So my wife and I had been married for nine years at, up to that point. Got married when I was 21. She was 20. We were going to change the world. Um, I'm 30, right? And uh, was beginning to travel. I think I just... Uh, a couple of years earlier, I'd signed with Sparrow Records and, you know, I was just doing all this stuff. And we were in Los Angeles at the time and we were driving back to San Jose wh where we lived and I had picked this nice restaurant on the coast, you know, where she and I were going to celebrate my 30th birthday. My 30th birthday. I was really good. And I was excited about my 30th birthday because people had told me all my life, well, when you turn 30, that's when you get anointed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jesus was 30 and Joseph was 30 and... You know, Ezekiel was 30, and da David was 30. When he began, you know, all these 30 guys. I thought, oh, this is going to be great, wonderful, love it. So, okay, we're driving on 101, about an hour into the drive. I'm just, you know, this is my 30th, I'm expecting the heavens to open and, you know, angels from descending and ascending on my head kind of deal. Uh, my, my wife, and she is so honest and so refreshing, but she turns to me, and she looks at me, and she says, uh, she says, "Hun, you know, um, I, I don't think you love me. Now, <laughs> this is my 30th birthday. This is my anointing day. This is when the power of God comes upon me. Now, I knew, you know, when your wife says something like that, you know that you, you just have got to, you know, you've got to kind of keep your cool. I mean, my, part of me wanted to say, what on earth? But I said, okay, okay, okay. So I just figured that I had to find out what, what was eating her. She was very sweet about it, by the way. But I just had to figure it out, okay, she's, there's, something, there's something in her gut that I just need to 
figure out. So I began to ask her a bunch of questions. I said, well, honey, um, you know, are, are, are you feeling like, like um, I'm not providing for you? Are you feeling unprovided for? We don't have enough furniture or just, you know, your best basic necessities? No, 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 you're really good, very conscientious, that's fine. I said, uh, well, hon, is it, is it a matter of time? I'm not spending enough time with you? Uh, no, 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 we've got enough time. It's fine, no problems there. A little too much maybe, you know, because she likes her space. <laughs> so time's not the problem. And then I, you know, kind of going through my list of questions and I come to the question that says, well, baby, I, s- I said that, you know, am, am, I, am I romantic enough for you? Oh yeah, you're fine there, no problem. Everything checks out. So I, get, I finish my list uh, with my sense of manhood intact, and I say to her, I said, well, I lost my cool then. I said, then what's the problem? And she said, I don't know. Not, nothing will send a man to the moon quicker <laughs> than I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, my tack was, I'm going to ask all these questions, try to figure, try to solve the problem, and then get it out of my hair. I said, okay, we solved the problem, we got that done. I said, well, I said, how, how, can I, how, can I fix, how can I fix it when I don't know what the problem is? She says, well, I, I don't know. I just feel it. You're powerless against the woman's feelings. Just totally, completely, completely undone and powerless. So needless to say, my 30th birthday just kind of fizzled. I was not the man of power I thought I was to be in that hour. I was, I was a jerk of a husband who didn't know how to love his wife, and that's all it was. And I just thought, this is terrible. Well, about two months later, and she, you know, she was sweet about it. We just kind of dropped it. About two months later, it dawned on me what she was getting at. It dawned on me. What it was is that when she had me, she didn't really have me. She had part of me, but the other part of me was planning my next five-year trajectory, is writing the next song, developing the next sermon, planning for the next conference. At that point, I was traveling all the time. When she had me, she didn't really have me. I said, that's it. She doesn't have me. So I said, hey, I think I know, I think I know what you felt. And she said, that's it. When you're present with me, I don't feel like I have all of you. See, within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have all of each other all the time. And they never have to ask to be loved. And you say, well, yeah, but we're dealing with human relationships. But here's the thing. Because God is perfectly, perfectly capable of communicating complete love, when you and I are in a place of receiving, we're at a place of being free from the need to get love from others, trusting God to bring love from others as he will. Do I need does, does, like, does Tom need for me to come and say, I really respect you as a leader in the body of Christ? Yeah. Do any one of us need to be, uh, uh, receive affirmation? Yeah, I'm not minimizing the need. What I'm saying is we're free from having to get it ourselves because when we get it ourselves, like in a way, Nancy was, at, was trying to get love from me. It was good. In fact, it was, m- the issue was with me. But in that moment of driving, she was asking for love. I don't feel like you love me. And when we know that we're loved by God, I'm telling you, dear ones, it frees us from having to ask for love. You see, well, that sounds really, really risky. I was talking to somebody, a marketplace leader, just about two weeks ago about some of this. It sounds risky. You mean if I just basically shut up 
and I just give, and I never, I, I'm never honest about receiving, all I, all I can tell you is that what happens when you and I are secure in the Father's love and we then live to give, you just become so cool to be around. Now, I know this is psychological here, but it's true. Someone that doesn't, is not carrying the hidden need to be affirmed is someone that you like to be around. Because there's this subconscious. You can tell when you're around somebody that's, that's you know, trying to you know, kind of sucking life out of you. They're, 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 they're looking. They're, they're looking to get some sense of approval. And even if they're really neat people, you kind of sense that. So you just are a little guarded. You don't know why. Why is this relating in the moment just feeling a little strained? Sometimes it's just that. There is a subconscious hidden agenda to it. If you and I start with, I'm loved by God, therefore I am totally free to give. What it does doesn't change your need for your husband to love you, your wife to love you, your best friend to love you, your, your boss to show you respect. It doesn't change your needs, but it does change how you receive it. And all of a sudden, you become more relaxed, you become more genuine, you become more authentic. You know, among especially millennials, and all my kids are millennials, right? So I've been around them for uh, a while and I really value so much of what they value. And one of them is authenticity. Well, you know what? Talk about, authenticity is not gained by trying to be yourself. Authenticity comes as you simply give and allow yourself to receive as the afterglow, as the byproduct. The thing of it is, when you go, when you go at it in that way, you become such an appealing person. Who wouldn't want to be around you? You're not sucking anybody dry. You're not looking for it. You're not on the hunt. You will be so, people will hang, want to hang with you because they feel so relaxed and so free around you because you're not looking to them. You know that you, you, you're not self-reliant. You know, I don't need anybody to love me. I am so loved by God. I am. No, I need, I need people to love me. But I know the danger of me initiating that and trying to go after it. So I want to stay in a place of, okay, I, I, I would sure like to have a word of encouragement from, okay, I mean, it's just got to be honest. So um, our team, we've walked together, some, most of us, for about 10 years since we planted the church. And our associate pastor, who's now our executive pastor, Aaron, he was there from the beginning. So Aaron and I got together, this is about, I don't know, two or three years ago. And um, it was just one of those times. We just, let's just talk, me and, and Amy and Aaron. We sat down, let's just, let's just talk. And out of the conversation, um, um, I said to Aaron, I said, Aaron, and I, I, we, weren't looking, we weren't looking to get from each other, but in the course of just out of our security in Christ and the de desire to bless each other by being honest, which made the honesty safe. That's where people have a hard time being honest because they don't think it's going to be safe. It is safe. Honesty is always safe if you are beginning with the premise that everybody in the circle is loved by God. So therefore, honesty will not have any repercussions. So in that place of safety, I said, Aaron, um, it's been a couple years when you've said anything affirming to me. And Aaron said, well, it's been three years since I've known where I've stood with you. <laughs> it was great. It was glorious. We had a wonderful time. Now, our, our working relationship was not bad. We were still tethered together, but we knew that for the long term, that we just needed to go deeper. So I'm not saying that, that we don't 
we're not honest about the need of, we have from each other. I'm just saying we can let it go and let God bring to us through other people the affirmation and the acceptance and the approval that we need. We're really free in that. Okay, let's see. Um, probably this is a good time uh, for a break. Um, 10 minutes. 10 minutes, get some coffee. Um, empty your bladder, whatever you need to do to uh, stay awake from the last session. Blessings. We'll see here. It's about 10 to, let's, uh, uh, 3 o'clock straight up. Okay, is that good? 3 o'clock straight up. Okay. Um, I, I, I was told that it is okay. I know that we're not to have coffee in the sanctuary. We have the same kind of policy with, in our worship center. And not that we try to be kind of hard-nosed about it, but you know, cleaning is a, is a challenge. Coffee spills are a challenge. Uh, that said, I was given special dispensation by Tom to, if I needed to stay caffeinated. <laughs> I will not move. I'll stay right here on the bricks. <laughs> well, you know, of course, that one of the Hebrew words for uh, the, one of the ingredients in the anointing oil, that it can be translated caffeine. I don't know if you knew that, but no, it's not. That is totally bogus, so don't say that. <laughs> I just know I need caffeine. Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, so continuing on, we, um, I'm going to connect the great commandment with the first commandment. So we know that the great commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we see that through the lens of John 15, 9, as the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Now let's, let's look at what that says to us about the great commandment. I want to suggest that the great commandment we perhaps have misunderstood to some degree because we haven't first looked at the first commandment, which is, let me love you. Again, 1 John 5, 9, I think, is later in our notes. We loved him because what? He, that's right. God's love is always prior. Even when it comes to fulfilling the great commandment, his love is always prior. So if you look at this, Mark 12, um, there, there are two moments in the Gospels where the great commandment is articulated, one by Jesus himself and then one by a person whom Jesus asks, what is the greatest commandment? The one in Luke is the one that Jesus is asking another, uh, uh, I believe one of the scribes, what is the greatest commandment? And he says in the Luke account, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well spoken. When Jesus is asked that same question in Mark here, Jesus gives a more developed answer. And I want to look at that for a minute. One of the scribes comes to Jesus and heard, and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and strength. Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, Jesus adds uh, that, that, that the Shema, the, abs, the, the, the Hebrew um, cornerstone, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scribe didn't, didn't start with that the, from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus did, and I'll tell you why. Jesus had a full awareness of why that preamble of 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was so important. We look at that through Western eyes and we think that it was uh, God calling Israel to affirm monotheism. But for Israel, it was much richer than that. Yes, it was that. But when they said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what they were referring to was the covenant that God had established with them. That was a covenantal statement for them, not just a theological one. So, okay, when we're saying that, uh, back with Moses, when, when Moses is saying, this is what you will say. When they said, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, they were hearkening back in the very verbiage there, hearkening back to their deliverance from Egypt and especially their deliverance through the Red Sea and the fact that God had brought them through and had defeated their foes. In other words, the, the, the phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which to us sounds like pure theology, a statement of monotheism, to the ancient Isra Israelite was that plus a covenantal statement. It was a reminder, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was shorthand for saying the Lord our God has saved us. In addition with the affirmation that he's one. And so there's something of covenantal love embedded in this that we miss as Westerners. Jesus rightly begins his response with the covenant statement, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. Meaning that before we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to be reminded and know and realize we are loved. To put it really simply, Jesus is, in saying this, is saying, which was the more complete, uh, complete saying from ancient Israel, we are in covenant relationship, loved by God, therefore we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even here, there's precedent to understand the great commandment through the lens of the first commandment. So they, Israel would have known that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is, this is the one in whom covenant love resides and through him, through whom covenant love is first expressed to us and then he commands us to love him. Jesus would have understood oneness when the Lord our God is one he would have understood oneness in terms of his relationship with the Father. So when Jesus is saying the Lord our God is one, the Lord is one, he's, his own self-awareness as God is that the oneness is communal oneness. Again, we, we know that on this side of the, of, of the cross and the empty tomb. We know this on this side of the day of Pentecost. And then when we, go, when, when we read back into what Jesus would have understood, how he would have self-referenced, how he understood his saying that in that moment, the Lord our God is one, he would have, as, as we see in John, he would have understood that oneness was between he and the Father in reciproc reciprocal love relationship. And he said, why, why is this important? Because, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And we need to interpret the great commandment this way. Love the Lord your God by letting him first love you. Love the Lord your God by letting him first love you. You say, you know, how do I love God? Worship, yes. Obedience, of course. How do I love God? What I want to suggest here today is that the first way we love God is by letting him love us. This is, you know, we think, well, of course I want to be loved by God. Well, I mean, remember the, 
Remember the washing of the feet. And Jesus comes to Peter to wash his feet. And Peter, Peter says, no, you can't do that. I mean, that self-reliant thing in Peter was pretty, pretty steep. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part of me. Oh, okay, well then just go for it all. Just wash me. Here, Jesus, I'm yours, right? Um, that, that, that whole moment of vulnerability where you are at the mercy of love. You just, there's nothing you can do to fix your feet and make them look any prettier. Jesus is right there. I mean, can you imagine Peter? Okay, wait, wait, wait. I get it. We're doing this humility deal. You're showing us how to live, how to relate to each other. Okay, I get it. Just a sec. Dust the feet off. Okay, Jesus. No, once Jesus comes to you, it's too late to do anything for yourself. Uh-oh. I can't move. He's asking to wash my feet now. I can't even flick one piece of dirt off. I'm going to have to present my smelly feet to him just as they are right here. That's, you know, being loved, to be loved means you are completely sacrificing your self-reliance. Say, oh, of course I want God to love me. No, to let God love you really does mean total vulnerability to his love. Which, on the other side of that vulnerability, it's like, oh, well, how could I have ever resisted it? But when I say that, uh, when I say that um, to love God first means to let him love you, you might think, well, that just sounds really self-focused. You know, um, it sounds much more sanctimonious to say the way we love God is to obey him. Now, Jesus is going to say that in this passage. I don't know if we're going to even get to that today. Obedience, obedience looms large in the, in the vine and, and, and branch passage. But the obedience, we miss the fact that obedience is the overflow of the loved. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, to love the Lord your God by letting him first love you, great. Being, okay, so here's, here's a great example of how we um, automatically go to the uh, performance place or the character place. So Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his. How many times have we read that and just assumed that conformity was a character issue? It is that. We are being made like unto Jesus. To love, to be patient, to be meek, to be um, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, I get that. But have you ever thought that the very first thing to be conformed to the image of Jesus is to be a love receiver? The Son is the perfect love receiver, receiving love from the Father 24-7. So to be conformed to the image of Jesus, I automatically, again, because of my upbringing, because I think of our Western our Western orientation and worldview, we automatically go to the performance place. So to being made like Jesus is to be compliant with the will of God. It is to be humble. It is to be teachable. It is to be gracious. It is to be winsome. It is to be all those things. Not minimizing that, but why wouldn't we also, right at the beginning, say to be conformed like Jesus is to be conformed to a love receiver? Isn't that part of it? Sure it is. Again, that's just, I think our bias when it comes to performance is really, really strong. Because God is love, meaning his love always goes first, 
If his love didn't go first, then it would mean he wasn't God because, because we could initiate love ourselves. It would actually, if, if God didn't love first uh, with us loving in return, it would be, as I said before, it would be God, um, God responding to our initiative. Um, I know Song of Solomon has a lot about that and uh, it's one of my favorite books in all the Bible. And there is this kind of reciprocity that, you know, there's initiative that the bride takes and then there's, you know, the action of the, uh, of the bridegroom. And uh, again, it, that's all very real. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to really underscore the issue that God's love is always prior. It's always prior. And if we could cause God to love us in any way by our obedience or otherwise, then that to me questions the very, the very nature of God as someone who could be conditioned by us. I'm, I've already mentioned that. Abiding in Christ by being loved by God. Let's kind of look at this now and go through the scripture back in John 15 and let's read it through this lens. So John 15, four, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain or abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain. If you take verse nine as the hermeneutical turnkey of this, then let's read it this way. Remain in the awareness that you are loved by God as I also keep you aware of my love. No branch can express love by itself. It must remain in the awareness that he is loved by God. Neither can you be secure to love others unless you remain in the awareness that you are loved by God. Verse nine, when you, when, when you seriously take verse nine as the hermeneutic key to interpretation of this pericope, this passage, then it suddenly gets really exciting. So now, uh, by, reading, by defining the word remain as remaining in Christ's love. What is the fruit? Is the fruit evangelism? Is it good works? In the context, the fruit is the life of dependence that flows out of the security I have in being loved by God. That's the fruit. The fruit is the life that flows out of the security I have in being loved by God. You say, well, this sounds so self-focused. I know that. Probably why I, I just didn't quite get this for so many years because um, my background made it, I, again, I got grace, but I still, there was a part of me that felt like I had something to do with the equation in God loving me. If I obey, God's gonna love me more. And I realized that the fruit here is what is the, the actual security that comes in being loved by God, which will produce the kind of fruit that we usually associate with this passage, like souls or good works or kindness or acts of justice those fruits are really the overflow of the fruit of your security in Christ. And again, it goes back to the idea that as he, as he nourishes the freedom that you have, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. As, as your freedom is nourished in this awareness that you are loved by God, it again produces the margin for you to look obedient, for you to look fruitful, for you to do acts of justice. But, but in your heart, you know that that's the overflow. That is not the, initi that's not the initiative. It's, it's, it kind of goes to the, um, kind of goes to the piece of uh, um, authority uh, uh, and responsibility. So um, maybe I can carve it this way. So uh, Scott was so right this morning about lordship. Gosh, I, I, that was one of the many things I wrote down. I mean, when he said 90 times in the book of Acts, the appeal is to the lordship of Jesus. Three times the appeal is to the saviorhood of Jesus. 
Not that we don't devalue Christ as our Savior, but there's something about lordship. But I think, I, I, I think we have misunderstood lordship, and sometimes I think we have mistaught it. So if you go back to the garden moment, Adam and Eve, we, we would say that they were under the lordship of God, right? Under his rule. Well, what did it mean for them to be under God's lordship? It meant a whole lot of stuff. One of the few things, one of the sidelines that it meant is that, um, is that they actually enjoyed lordship because it meant he was responsible for their care and their provision, their guidance, their security, right? That it was a place of great security. We think it's, we think it's a place of, 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 of great sacrifice. You know, we hear the word lordship and we think surrender and sacrifice and abandonment. Adam and Eve would have heard security, guidance, provision, care. That's what they would have heard. Now, you know, God, on his part, he, was, he, he, wasn't, uh, he, wasn't ever, uh, he wasn't ever threatened by somebody coming and knocking him off his throne. He, you know, he's God. Nobody, nobody's going to usurp my authority. And because, no, because he was sec- totally secure in his place of authority, because he's God, he was free to influence through love. He didn't have to coerce through threats. Right? So it was all good until Adam and Eve disobeyed. And in doing that, they took on an authority for what they were not, they were not designed. See, the reason why God was secure in his authority is because he knows the end from the beginning. That's why nobody's going to threaten God. He knows it all. Problem with us taking authority is we don't know it all. And so what happens is that we have to protect ourselves from what we don't know. Like I don't know, for example, I don't know what you're thinking about me right now. I don't know what, you don't know what I'm thinking about you at 315. You don't know that. So to protect ourselves from what we don't know, we have to erect devices of self-protection. And I think we could call those devices rights. The right to be understood, the right to give our opinion, the right to have companionship. Our rights really are those things we assert to protect ourselves because we've taken on an authority that's not ours. We've taken on a responsibility that is not ours. And when we come into the lordship of God, we're surrendering the responsibility of our lives back to him. But it doesn't, you won't look irresponsible to the world. You'll actually look very responsible. I don't like the word responsibility, just so you know. I just, I know it's just like, you're, you're, you're a good old American. You don't like the idea of responsibility. Well, I like the word stewardship better. Stewardship is a much better word. Do you know why? Because it doesn't imply ownership. Responsibility implies, implies ownership. Like I have to own my future, so I got to plan for it. I get that we need to plan for our future, but even the planning for your future should be the overflow of present grace, not spurred out of fear of the unknown. All right, so I, um, my wife, um, again, it was back in our early, er, er, early marriage, and uh, um, I already mentioned, you know, I'm a pastor's kid, grew up in church. She actually grew up uh, in a non-saved home. Her parents owned a yacht, so every weekend they were on the yacht at the Delta, you know, one of the waterways out in the Bay Area. She came to faith uh, in her senior year in high school, radical conversion, great, but she was unchurched for most of her life. I had the church protocols down really well. So about, I don't know, two or three years into our marriage, um, 
I began to see a couple things in her that I was just concerned. I mean, small stuff, really small stuff. But, you know, when you're 23 and you're going to conquer the world, you know, your spouse's idiosyncrasies look pretty large. And uh, I thought, God, she's got to change, man. If we don't get this together, we're not going to be the power couple. I know you want us to be. So I was kind of worked up by this for a couple couple months. And finally, like one night, it's about midnight in our little condo, and I'm, I'm, I'm pacing back and forth, praying, crying out to God. Oh, God. And she's asleep. She goes to bed earlier than I do, so she's up there. She's asleep. But she hears, this, she hears me crying out to God. Oh, God. I like that kind of deal. And she comes down the stairs very innocently. She says, honey, she says, what's wrong? And I just, that's it. I just kind of Vesuvius blue. I said, I'll tell you what's wrong. Woman, you've got to change. I said, look, we, God's got something for us. I said, you know, honey, if you don't, and then, I, you know, I started prophesying. Honey, the word of the Lord would say, if you don't change, then, and I threw out a couple consequences. I can't even remember, thank God. I mean, you, I know you women are looking at me and saying, what a jerk, <laughs> you know, jerk. Yeah, I, get, I, I agree. So she went, up to, she went back to bed, and, um, you know, she took it. And then I, you know, I kind of got it off my chest, and so then I went to bed, and okay, then forgot about it. And again, it was another one of those two or three months later, it dawns. I'm really thick-headed, so it dawns on me a little later. And it dawned on me. In fact, it didn't just dawn on me. I was in, the, in my garden. I was just t- telling the garden, and God spoke to me. He said, what is your responsibility towards your wife? I said, well, it's to make sure that she becomes a woman of God. <laughs> and, and God didn't rebuke me. He just, you know working with me there. No, no. No, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to love her unconditionally so that I can work in her. So that she can be a jewel for my crown on the day she stands before me. Now you'd think when you get chastised by the Lord like that, you know, you'd feel a little bad. I actually, did, I didn't feel bad at all. I said, here's my response. I kid you not. I said, really? It's not my responsibility to change her? Huh. I was free man. The fact is that I was the one that needed a whole lot more changing than she did. As we, you know, our, kind of walked our marriage out, I realized how much, you know, I won't tell you how, how much of a jerk I was in the early years. She was very patient with me. But the fact is, sometimes we can feel like responsible to change our kids. Parents, you're not responsible to change your kids. Your responsibility is to be a good steward of Scripture and train up a child in the way he, she should go. Leave the changing to God. You're not, you're not called to change your church, change your pastor. See, when we take on a responsibility like that, it comes with the baggage of control. That's why I like the word stewardship. If you're, if you're a butler, like if you're a butler in God's mansion and an earthquake comes and all the fine china comes crashing on the marble floor, why do you care? It's not your china. You're a butler. You're a steward. Stewardship is a great word. Now, to the, to, to the outward society, you will look very responsible. Wow, he just, he's got it all together. <coughs> but without the anxiety, without the control stuff. I I think that's what I'm trying to say here is that that when we we look at obedience, see, obedience, the fruit is the outflow of a life completely surrendered. It's it's the life that completely receives and and the obedience, the fruit, that is, again, that is the overflow. 
Look at John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now read it through the I am loved by God lens. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in the awareness of my love and I keep you aware of my love, which I can always do, you will be so secure in my love that people will experience my love through you. And apart from being convinced and aware of my love, you can do nothing. It just puts a different cast on it. How about verse, this is a good one, verse 6. If you do not remain, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Through verse 9, read it this way. If you do not remain in the awareness that you're loved by God, you will become so dead to the awareness that you're loved by God that you will no longer know how to be loved or give love. So you'll be like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Listen, these, I'm not going to go into, you know, is this describing a Christian or a non-Christian? I don't want to even touch eternal security. I just want to be practical with this and just say, by the time you're getting here to the branches being burned, they're already, they're already dead. We look at this as a judgment thing. Oh, God is just looking for branches to burn. <laughs> No, he's just, he's just looking at the obvious. Oh, there's no life left. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking salvifically here. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just, I just, we'll just look at the practice of it. It's like just, just all we need to do is walk in the awareness of being loved by God. And I'm going to get to the practice here uh, and, and let that speak for itself. So loved by God and obeying God. Um, again, um, 15 verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain his love. And the principle here, God's love always comes first. <coughs> always comes first. Three outcomes of seeing obedience is the overflow of God's love. I don't want to minimize, I don't want you to leave here thinking that I'm not, not all in when it comes to obedience. But, but I want to see it as the overflow of God's love. Obedience is not about earning God's love, but knowing we have received God's love. I know that when I'm walking in my awareness that I'm loved by God, obedience just comes much easier and much more natural. If I assume that I am loved by God, then when obedience is hard, I will first look at where I have not allowed the Father to love me rather than condemn myself. I will look where I have not allowed the Father to love me. This is a really good one when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. And I counsel, I've counseled a lot of people over the years uh, and a lot of times forgiveness is one of the top three issues. People have been hurt. They've been hurt by a loved one. They've been hurt by a spouse. Sometimes really, really offended. Sometimes uh, victimized terribly. And, and, and they'll come and they say, look, I know I should forgive them. I know I should forgive them. But I'm having a hard time. And, and people are telling me just forgive every day. And that's something true to that. Just even breathing out forgiveness every day is, <coughs> is a great discipline. But I have come to counsel people this way. Look, if you are having a hard time forgiving someone that's hurt you really bad, okay, just take that hurt for a moment and just park it here. Just don't try to resolve it yet. Just park it here. And, and come over here and just let the Father love you. Yeah, but if I don't forgive this person, I'm not going to receive his love. No, 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 no. He knows that's what you, exactly what you need. That he, he wants you to be doused with his love so much that he just squeezes forgiveness out of you because the love displaces the unforgiveness. I remember many, many years ago um, um, in, uh, in, uh, it's when I was pastoring uh, a larger church before the church plant and um, I a, a particular situation, I had to, I had to take a, 
Um, uh, actually, it was before I was pastoring. Let me get this right. Okay, right. Okay. I was, I was brought into a counseling situation with, with a pastor's son in the area. Pastor's son and his wife, I was, I was traveling full time and he came and he wanted some counseling. And uh, the, the, uh, the son had become just livid towards his dad who was the pastor and he was the youth pastor. And so I'm leaving, that's it, pat it, I'm leaving. Well, I sat down uh, with him and I said, no, look, you do not want to do that. Go back and, and s- just stay with your dad. Walk it out. It, it might be the best thing that it comes to that where you have some separation time and you, you know, go to another ministry for a while. But you, you, don't, you do not want to do this. You want to walk well with your father. And I gave him some ways to work it out. I got a, I, I got a call from his father, uh, I think within a day or two, and just reamed me out silly. Now, the pastor, who's since become a real friend of mine, uh, but this... And, and who came to me about 20 years later and apologized, by the way. But back then, he was actually having his strings pulled by another. They had joined, they had joined a movement that was a, f- a bit more authoritarian than, than I was used to. And I think that's what the, the son was re- reacting to. And I said, no, no, you don't want to stay. You wanna. But the guy that was kind of pulling the pastor's strings a little bit was feeding him some stuff. And the end result was that I got reamed, reamed. And the guy, the more apostolic guy that was, that was kind of even above the pastor, uh, a, a little later on, I got, I got feeling like, okay, the humble thing is I need to go to this brother and I need to, he really wounded me. I need to go and I need to talk it out. And I just got really nervous about it. I just thought, oh God, I don't want to, uh, I know I need to do it, okay. And I'm not saying that we just give into our emotions and, and just, just take the easy way out. But I will tell you that in that moment, I said, God, what do I do? And I was directed to Psalm 27, and there's a picture that David portrays of, you will hide me in the recesses of your cave. And then, and, and the implication is, and then you will bring me forth from my place of hiding. You will, you will take me into your hiding place. I said, ah, okay. God, you're saying to me that if I try to go because it's the right thing to do to establish reconciliation in this moment, it's not going to go anywhere. In fact, I will probably get beat up even more. And you're saying, no, just, you just be in my refuge. There will be a time, there will be a time that, that you will be, this relationship will be restored. Well, then years later, when, uh, and I never, tried to rebuild, I never tried to rebuild it with the ap- apostolic guy that had, had uh, castigated me pretty bad. When it came time to plant the church in 2007, he was one of the first to say, Steve, you've got to plant the church. Total vindication. Total vindication. He said, yeah, plant the church. And then the very pastor uh, who had gone out of state came back after being away for years. And uh, as soon as he got in town, this was like five years ago, and all this happened in the early 90s, by the way, this meltdown. So when just five years ago, the pastor who had reamed me out for even, even allowing his son to talk to me, uh, n- never mind that I really brought him back 
<laughs> he was gone. He was out of there. And by the grace of God, I was the one who brought him back. That kind of got lost in the, you know, in the recounting of it. But he called me five years ago when he got back in town, the pastor, the dad. He said, I'm so sorry. Please, I am so sorry for the way I treated you. This goes back about 15 years. You say, what are you saying? I guess what I'm saying is there are times in which to try to force even obedience. God knows you want to be obedient. And forgiveness is a great example. To try to, okay, I've got to, I've, I've got to forgive this person. I would say, yes, you do. Put that on hold. Come back and get under the spigot. I am loved by God. Oh, I'm loved by God. Yes, you are. And there's something about recentering there that actually increases your verve to forgive. That's how practical this can be. All right. Um, gosh, we got to go on here. If I'm truly aware that I'm loved by God, then I don't need any promise for any outcome of my obedience. If I'm truly aware that I'm loved by God, I don't need any promise for any outcome of my obedience. I, uh, I, I'm just going to read the rest so you can finish your outline. There's nothing like leaving with, with blanks. So we'll finish this and then we'll, we'll be done, okay? Loved by God and trusting God. If you live like you're loved by God, you will rest in God's sovereignty, knowing that you are actually living out the plan God has had for your life because it is the way he designed for you to learn how to be loved. I'll, I'll repeat this two or three times. This is a long one. Because it's the way he designed for you to learn how to be loved by him. It's the way he designed for you to learn how to be loved by him. Um, the, sec the one before, ah, outcome. You don't need any promise of any outcome. In other words, you just obey because you just want to obey. You don't need any outcomes insured for, okay, I'll obey if. Cool. Just a little sidebar here. Um, I see so many people that labor under what they think is the inferiority of their gifting. And they say, well, I can't, I can't do what that guy does. I'm not gifted like that woman is. And you know, I, I don't have time to develop this. I just want to drop this seed in your thought based on this idea that the way he made you is the way you were designed to receive love. So, you know, if you take the motivation gift test in, 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 in Romans 12, nobody wants to come out a server. <laughs> right? Am I right? Like, okay, uh, mercy, that's okay. Leader, prophet, server, oh gosh. Not realizing that actually in the context there, the server is the one who lubricates the other six gifts. The serving gift is not about just setting the table for the potluck. The server is the lubricant that makes a team oiled. It's a, f it's a fabulous gift. The point I'm making though is, see, we can think our gifts are, are secondary. Oh, I'm just a one talent. It really is not about your gifts that much. It's really about your, that's the way you're going to receive the love of God. It's the way you're wired to receive intimacy. And if you despise your gifting, you say, well, I'm not articulate. I wish I was articulate. No, you don't. Because if you are not who you are, God made you inarticulate. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn how to speak. We can always improve. But I'm, what I'm getting at is you may feel real bad that you're not a public speaker and feel like you're not as valued. Listen, 
you are made the way you are because that's the way God has designed you to receive his love. And that's the way you're going to cultivate intimacy. And if you, if you shut that off, you're shutting maybe a third of your life off to intimacy with God. He's designed you that as you express your gifting, whether it's a one, five, ten, fifty talent thing, I don't, he's designed you just to function as you are is how you are especially wired to receive intimacy. Your gifting is in a sense is secondary. It's the intimacy with God. So be free wherever your gifting is. Be free. Perfect love casts out all fear. That's a good one. Um, you can read that. There's no fill in the blank there. It's just true. Except to say most relationship problems are based in fear. Yeah. So you can read that. Loved by God and loving one another. Um, look at, yeah, John 13. Let's just look at this real, real quick. John 13, 34, 35. This is one of the first things he says in the upper room. A new command I give to you, you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. We have often read the latter part of verse 34 this way. I have given you this example. Imitate it. Now, I mentioned that earlier today. I've given you this example. Imitate it. But I think a better way to look at this passage is this. As I am loving you, love each other. It's more dynamic. It's more Einsteinian. <laughs> as you are being sourced, flow. It's not, okay, I see Jesus, I do Jesus. That's cause and effect. It is, yeah, I watch Jesus, but now I am receiving and flowing from that ongoing source. Much better way to look at it. Okay. Um, all relationship problems begin to be solved by first seeing how that problem can increase your experience of God's love for you. Okay, uh, again, you can read all this. Go down to love by God practically applied. To be loved by God is to be content with your gifts. To be loved by God is to be content with your gifts. I've already kind of mentioned some of that. Next one. If I assume that I am loved by God, then when obedience is hard, I will first look at where I have not allowed the Father to love me rather than to first condemn myself. Okay? If I assume that I am loved by God, then when obedience is hard, I will first look at where I have not allowed the Father to love me rather than to condemn myself. Um, next fill in the blank. We're almost, we're almost done here. Next fill in the blank. It is, it's not about earning God's love, but knowing whether or not we have received God's love. Oh, you don't have that one. Good. Then don't worry about it. It's in my notes. This is another one. I don't think you notes either. Obedience is the indication that we have received God's love. Is that there? That's probably just written there for you. Okay. Then whatever's written, just enjoy. Let's just get the blanks filled so we can go to dinner. So. Do you have this blank? When I live loved by God, I am much freer from the fear of conflict. Got that? Okay, that's a good one. When I live loved by God, I am much freer from the fear of conflict because I don't have to be afraid I will lose face if I'm at fault. I'll, I'll repeat these again. I don't have to be afraid that I will lose face if I am at fault, and I don't have to be afraid of being rejected by the other person who may not admit he's wrong. I'll repeat this whole deal. When I live loved by God, I am much freer from the fear of conflict because I don't have to be afraid I will lose face if I'm, face if I'm at fault, and I don't have to be afraid of being rejected by the other person who may not admit he's wrong. If I'm loved by God, then see the outcomes of the conflict resolution scenario is, uh, uh, is secondary. 
I'm loved by God. I don't have to fear that. A lot of times we get nervous that we're going we're gonna to be distrusted. We're going to lose face. We're going to be kind of um, shunted down in the pecking order in the social organism. You know? Um, loved by God, none of those fears matter. They, 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 have no, they have no power over you. You don't ever have to fear of losing face in a, in a conflict. Let's say you have to say, oh yeah, I'm wrong. When you're loved by God, I am loved by God and I'm wrong. That's how it works. Most of us, oh, I'm wrong. No, 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 no. You are loved by God and then you're wrong. <laughs> Big difference. Finally, when I know I am loved by God, I will live out of being sourced. Live out of being sourced by the Holy Spirit. That's for another time. Today is just basically helping us to see our relationship as branches divine an I am loved by God lens. So Lord, I just thank you for today. Thank you for just what you're forming in us. Lord, we just give it all back to you. Thank you for um, this, this time to come away together and feed on your riches. Refresh us this afternoon, Lord. Can just increase our bandwidth to receive tonight. Thank you, Father. Pray grace on this house, grace on the leadership of this house and all that you're doing. In your name, amen.